Section 20 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901-1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Theodore Roosevelt, December 3, 1906, Part 1. To the Senate and House of Representatives. As a nation, we still continue to enjoy a literally unprecedented prosperity, and it is probable that only reckless speculation and disregard of legitimate business methods on the part of the business world can materially mar this prosperity. No Congress in our time has done more good work of importance than the present Congress. There were several matters left unfinished at your last session, however, which I most earnestly hope you will complete before your adjournment. I again recommend a law prohibiting all corporations from contributing to the campaign expenses of any party. Such a bill has already passed one House of Congress. Let individuals contribute as they desire, but let us prohibit, in effective fashion, all corporations from making contributions for any political purpose, directly or indirectly. Another bill, which has just passed one House of the Congress, and which it is urgently necessary should be enacted into law, is that conferring upon the government the right of appeal in criminal cases on questions of law. This right exists in many of the states. It exists in the District of Columbia by Act of the Congress. It is, of course, not proposed that in any case a verdict for the defendants on the merits should be set aside. Recently, in one district where the government had indicted certain persons for conspiracy in connection with rebates, the court sustained the defendant's demurrer, while in another jurisdiction an indictment for conspiracy to obtain rebates has been sustained by the court, convictions obtained under it, and two defendants sentenced to imprisonment. The two cases referred to may not be in real conflict with each other, but it is unfortunate that there should even be an apparent conflict. At present, there is no way by which the government can cause such a conflict, when it occurs, to be solved by an appeal to a higher court, and the wheels of justice are blocked without any real decision of the question. I cannot too strongly urge the passage of the bill in question. A failure to pass it will result in seriously hampering the government in its effort to obtain justice, especially against wealthy individuals or corporations who do wrong, and may also prevent the government from obtaining justice for wage workers who are not themselves able effectively to contest a case where the judgment of an inferior court has been against them. I have specifically in view a recent decision by a district judge leaving railway employees without remedy for violation of a certain so-called labor statute. It seems an absurdity to permit a single district judge against what may be the judgment of the immense majority of his colleagues on the bench to declare a law solemnly enacted by the Congress to be, quote, unconstitutional, unquote, 
and then to deny to the government the right to have the Supreme Court definitely decide the question. It is well to recollect that the real efficiency of the law often depends not upon the passage of acts as to which there is great public excitement, but upon the passage of acts of this nature as to which there is not much public excitement because there is little public understanding of their importance, while the interested parties are keenly alive to the desirability of defeating them. The importance of enacting into law the particular bill in question is further increased by the fact that the government has now definitely begun a policy of resorting to the criminal law in those trust and interstate commerce cases where such a course offers a reasonable chance of success. At first, as was proper, every effort was made to enforce these laws by civil proceedings but it has become increasingly evident that the action of the government in finally deciding, in certain cases, to undertake criminal proceedings was justifiable. And though there have been some conspicuous failures in these cases, we have had many successes, which have undoubtedly had a deterrent effect upon evildoers, whether the penalty inflicted was in the shape of fine or imprisonment, and penalties of both kinds have already been inflicted by the courts. Of course, where the judge can see his way to inflict the penalty of imprisonment, the deterrent effect of the punishment on other offenders is increased. But sufficiently heavy fines accomplish much. Judge Holt of the New York District Court, in a recent decision, admirably stated the need for treating with just severity offenders of this kind. His opinion runs in part as follows, quote, The government's evidence to establish the defendant's guilt was clear, conclusive, and undisputed. The case was a flagrant one. The transactions which took place under this illegal contract were very large. The amounts of rebates returned were considerable, and the amount of the rebate itself was large amounting to more than one-fifth of the entire tariff charge for the transportation of merchandise from this city to Detroit. It is not too much to say, in my opinion, that if this business was carried on for a considerable time on that basis, that is, if this discrimination in favor of this particular shipper was made with an 18 instead of a 23-cent rate, and the tariff rate was maintained as against their competitors, the result might be, and not improbably would be, that their competitors would be driven out of business. This crime is one which in its nature is deliberate and premeditated. I think over a fortnight elapsed between the date of Palmer's letter requesting the reduced rate and the answer of the railroad company deciding to grant it. And then for months afterwards, this business was carried on and these claims for rebates submitted month after month, and checks in payment of them drawn month after month. Such a violation of the law, in my opinion, in its essential nature, is a very much more heinous act than the ordinary, common, vulgar crimes which come before criminal courts constantly for punishment. 
and which arise from sudden passion or temptation. This crime, in this case, was committed by men of education and of large business experience, whose standing in the community was such that they might have been expected to set an example of obedience to law, upon the maintenance of which alone in this country the security of their property depends. It was committed on behalf of a great railroad corporation, which, like other railroad corporations, has received gratuitously from the state large and valuable privileges for the public's convenience and its own, which performs quasi-public functions, and which is charged with the highest obligation in the transaction of its business to treat the citizens of this country alike, and not to carry on its business with unjust discriminations between different citizens or different classes of citizens. This crime in its nature is one usually done with secrecy, and proof of which it is very difficult to obtain. The Interstate Commerce Act was passed in 1887, nearly 20 years ago. Ever since that time, complaints of the granting of rebates by railroads have become common, urgent, and insistent. And although the Congress has repeatedly passed legislation endeavoring to put a stop to this evil, the difficulty of obtaining proof upon which to bring prosecution in these cases is so great that this is the first case that has ever been brought in this court, and, as I am formed, this case and one recently brought in Philadelphia are the only ones that have ever been brought in the eastern part of this country. In fact, but few cases of this kind have ever been brought in this country, east or west. Now, under these circumstances, I am forced to the conclusion in a case in which the proof is so clear and the facts are so flagrant, it is the duty of the court to fix a penalty which shall in some degree be commensurate with the gravity of the offense. As between the two defendants, in my opinion, the principal penalty should be imposed on the corporation. The traffic manager in this case presumably acted without any advantage to himself and without any interest in the transaction, either by the direct authority or in accordance with what he understood to be the policy or the wishes of his employer. The sentence of this court in this case is that the defendant Pomeroy, for each of the six offenses upon which he has been convicted, be fined the sum of $1,000, making six fines amounting in all to the sum of $6,000. And the defendant, the New York Central and Hudson River Railroad Company, for each of the six crimes of which it has been convicted, be fined the sum of $18,000, making six fines amounting in the aggregate to the sum of $108,000, and judgment to that effect will be entered in this case." Unquote. In connection with this matter, I would like to call attention to the very unsatisfactory state of our criminal law, resulting in large part from the habit of setting aside the judgments of inferior courts on technicalities absolutely unconnected with the merits of the case, and where there is no attempt to show 
that there has been any failure of substantial justice. It would be well to enact a law providing something to the effect that, quote, no judgment shall be set aside or new trial granted in any cause, civil or criminal, on the ground of misdirection of the jury or the improper admission or rejection of evidence or for error as to any matter of pleading or procedure, unless in the opinion of the court to which the application is made, after an examination of the entire cause, it shall affirmatively appear that the error complained of has resulted in a miscarriage of justice." Unquote. In my last message, I suggested the enactment of a law in connection with the issuance of injunctions, attention having been sharply drawn to the matter by the demand that the right of applying injunctions in labor cases should be wholly abolished. It is at least doubtful whether a law abolishing altogether the use of injunctions in such cases would stand the test of the courts, in which case, of course, the legislation would be ineffective. Moreover, I believe it would be wrong altogether to prohibit the use of injunctions. It is criminal to permit sympathy for criminals to weaken our hands in upholding the law. And if men seek to destroy life or property by mob violence, there should be no impairment of the power of the courts to deal with them in the most summary and effective way possible. But so far as possible, the abuse of the power should be provided against by some such law as I advocated last year. In this matter of injunctions, there is lodged in the hands of the judiciary a necessary power which is nevertheless subject to the possibility of grave abuse. It is a power that should be exercised with extreme care and should be subject to the jealous scrutiny of all men, and condemnation should be meted out as much to the judge who fails to use it boldly when necessary as to the judge who uses it wantonly or oppressively. Of course, a judge strong enough to be fit for his office will enjoin any resort to violence or intimidation, especially by conspiracy, no matter what his opinion may be of the rights of the original quarrel. There must be no hesitation in dealing with disorder. But there must likewise be no such abuse of the injunctive power as is implied in forbidding laboring men to strive for their own betterment in peaceful and lawful ways. Nor must the injunction be used merely to aid some big corporation in carrying out schemes for its own aggrandizement. It must be remembered that a preliminary injunction in the labor case, if granted without adequate proof, even when authority can be found to support the conclusions of law on which it is founded, may often settle the dispute between the parties, and therefore, if improperly granted, may do irreparable wrong. Yet there are many judges who assume a matter-of-course granting of a preliminary injunction to be the ordinary and proper judicial disposition of such cases and there have undoubtedly been flagrant wrongs committed by judges in connection with labor disputes even within the last few years, although I think much less often than in former years. Such judges, by their unwise action, 
immensely strengthen the hands of those who are striving entirely to do away with the power of injunction, and therefore such careless use of the injunctive process tends to threaten its very existence. For if the American people ever become convinced that this process is habitually abused, whether in matters affecting labor or in matters affecting corporations, it will be well-nigh impossible to prevent its abolition. It may be the highest duty of a judge at any given moment to disregard not merely the wishes of individuals of great political or financial power, but the overwhelming tide of public sentiment. And the judge who does thus disregard public sentiment when it is wrong who brushes aside the plea of any special interest when the pleading is not rounded on righteousness, performs the highest service to the country. Such a judge is deserving of all honor, and all honor cannot be paid to this wise and fearless judge if we permit the growth of an absurd convention which would forbid any criticism of the judge of another type, who shows himself timid in the presence of arrogant disorder, or who on insufficient grounds grants an injunction that does grave injustice, or who in his capacity as a construer, and therefore in part a maker of the law, in flagrant fashion thwarts the cause of decent government. The judge has a power over which no review can be exercised. He himself, sits in review upon the acts of both the executive and legislative branches of the government. Save in the most extraordinary cases, he is amenable only at the bar of public opinion, and it is unwise to maintain that public opinion in reference to a man with such power shall neither be expressed nor led. The best judges have ever been foremost to disclaim any immunity from criticism. This has been true since the days of the great English Lord Chancellor Parker, who said, quote, Let all people be at liberty to know what I found my judgment upon, that so when I have given it in any cause, others may be at liberty to judge of me, unquote. The proprieties of the case were set forth with singular clearness and good temper by Judge W.H. Taft when a United States Circuit judge 11 years ago in 1895, quote, The opportunity freely and publicly to criticize judicial action is of vastly more importance to the body politic than the immunity of courts and judges from unjust aspersions and attack. Nothing tends more to render judges careful in their decisions and anxiously solicitous to do exact justice than the consciousness that every act of theirs is to be subjected to the intelligent scrutiny and candid criticism of their fellow men. Such criticism is beneficial in proportion as it is fair, dispassionate, discriminating, and based on a knowledge of sound legal principles. The comments made by learned text writers and by the acute editors of the various law reviews upon judicial decisions are therefore highly useful. Such critics constitute more or less impartial tribunals of professional opinion, 
before which each judgment is made to stand or fall on its merits, and thus exert a strong influence to secure uniformity of decision. But non-professional criticism also is by no means without its uses, even if accompanied, as it often is, by a direct attack upon the judicial fairness and motives of the occupants of the bench. For if the law is but the essence of common sense, the protest of many average men may evidence a defect in a judicial conclusion, though based on the nicest legal reasoning and profoundest learning. The two important elements of moral character in a judge are an earnest desire to reach a just conclusion and courage to enforce it. Insofar as fear of public comment does not affect the courage of a judge, but only spurs him on to search his conscience and to reach the result which approves itself to his inmost heart, such comment serves a useful purpose. There are few men, whether they are judges for life or for a shorter term, who do not prefer to earn and hold the respect of all, and who cannot be reached and made to pause and deliberate by hostile public criticism. In the case of judges having a life tenure, indeed their very independence makes the right freely to comment on their decisions of greater importance, because it is the only practical and available instrument in the hands of a free people to keep such judges alive to the reasonable demands of those they serve. On the other hand, the danger of destroying the proper influence of judicial decisions by creating unfounded prejudices against the courts justifies and requires that unjust attacks shall be met and answered. Courts must ultimately rest their defense upon the inherent strength of the opinions they deliver as the ground for their conclusions and must trust to the calm and deliberate judgment of all the people as their best vindication, unquote. There is one consideration which should be taken into account by the good people who carry a sound proposition to an excess in objecting to any criticism of a judge's decision. The instinct of the American people as a whole is sound in this matter. They will not subscribe to the doctrine that any public servant is to be above all criticism. If the best citizens, those most competent to express their judgment in such matters, and above all, those belonging to the great and honorable profession of the bar, so profoundly influential in American life, take the position that there shall be no criticism of a judge under any circumstances, their view will not be accepted by the American people as a whole. In such event, the people will turn to and tend to accept as justifiable the intemperate and improper criticism uttered by unworthy agitators. Surely, it is a misfortune to leave to such critics a function right in itself which they are certain to abuse. Just and temperate criticism, when necessary, is a safeguard against the acceptance by the people as a whole of that intemperate antagonism towards the judiciary, which must be combated by every right-thinking man. 
and which, if it became widespread among the people at large, would constitute a dire menace to the Republic. In connection with the delays of the law, I call your attention, and the attention of the nation, to the prevalence of crime among us, and above all, to the epidemic of lynching and mob violence that springs up now in one part of our country, now in another. Each section, north, south, east, or west, has its own faults. No section can, with wisdom, spend its time jeering at the faults of another section. It should be busy trying to amend its own shortcomings. To deal with the crime of corruption, it is necessary to have an awakened public conscience and to supplement this by whatever legislation will add speed and certainty in the execution of the law. When we deal with lynching, even moat is necessary. A great many white men are lynched, but the crime is peculiarly frequent in respect to black men. The greatest existing cause of lynching is the perpetration, especially by black men, of the hideous crime of rape, the most abominable in all the categories of crimes, even worse than murder. Mobs frequently avenge the commission of this crime by themselves torturing to death the man committing it, thus avenging in bestial fashion a bestial deed and reducing themselves to a level with the criminal. Lawlessness grows by what it feeds upon, and when mobs begin to lynch for rape, they speedily extend the sphere of their operations and lynch for many other kinds of crimes, so that two-thirds of the lynchings are not for rape at all. While a considerable proportion of the individuals lynched are innocent of all crime, Governor Candler of Georgia stated on one occasion some years ago, quote, I can say of a verity that I have within the last month saved the lives of half a dozen innocent Negroes who were pursued by the mob and brought them to trial in a court of law in which they were acquitted, unquote as Bishop Galloway of Mississippi has finally said, quote, when the rule of a mob obtains, that which distinguishes a high civilization is surrendered. The mob which lynches a Negro charged with rape will, in a little while, lynch a white man suspected of crime. Every Christian patriot in America needs to lift up his voice in loud and eternal protest against the mob spirit that is threatening the integrity of this republic, unquote. Governor Jelks of Alabama has recently spoken as follows, quote, The lynching of any person for whatever crime is inexcusable anywhere. It is a defiance of orderly government, but the killing of innocent people under any provocation is infinitely more horrible. And yet innocent people are likely to die when a mob's terrible lust is once aroused. The lesson is this. No good citizen can afford to countenance a defiance of the statutes, no matter what the provocation. The innocent frequently suffer, and it is my observation more usually suffer than the guilty. The white people of the South indict the whole colored race on the ground that even the better elements lend no assistance whatever in ferreting out criminals of their own color. 
the respectable colored people must learn not to harbor their criminals, but to assist the officers in bringing them to justice. This is the larger crime, and it provokes such atrocious offenses as the one at Atlanta. The two races can never get on until there is an understanding on the part of both to make common cause with the law abiding against criminals of any color, unquote. Moreover, where any crime committed by a member of one race against a member of another race is avenged in such fashion that it seems as if not the individual criminal but the whole race is attacked, the result is to exasperate to the highest degree race feeling. There is but one safe rule in dealing with black men as with white men. It is the same rule that must be applied in dealing with rich men and poor men, that is, to treat each man, whatever his color, his creed, or his social position, with even-handed justice on his real worth as a man. White people owe it quite as much to themselves as to the colored race to treat well the colored man who shows by his life that he deserves such treatment. For it is surely the highest wisdom to encourage in the colored race all those individuals who are honest, industrious, law-abiding, and who therefore make good and safe neighbors and citizens. Reward or punish the individual on his merits as an individual. Evil will surely come in the end to both races if we substitute for this just rule the habit of treating all the members of the race, good and bad, alike. There is no question of, quote, social equality, unquote, or, quote, Negro domination, unquote, involved. Only the question of relentlessly punishing bad men and of securing to the good man the right to his life, his liberty, and the pursuit of his happiness, as his own qualities of heart, head, and hand enable him to achieve it. Every colored man should realize that the worst enemy of his race is the Negro criminal, and above all, the Negro criminal who commits the dreadful crime of rape, and it should be felt as in the highest degree an offense against the whole country, and against the colored race in particular, for a colored man to fail to help the officers of the law in hunting down with all possible earnestness and zeal every such infamous offender. Moreover, in my judgment, the crime of rape should always be punished with death, as is the case with murder. Assault with intent to commit rape should be made a capital crime, at least in the discretion of the court, and provision should be made by which the punishment may follow immediately upon the heels of the offense, while the trial should be so conducted that the victim need not be wantonly shamed while giving testimony, and that the least possible publicity shall be given to the details. The members of the white race, on the other hand, should understand that every lynching represents by just so much a loosening of the bands of civilization, that the spirit of lynching inevitably throws into prominence in the community all the foul and evil creatures who dwell therein. No man can take part in the torture of a human being without having his own moral nature permanently lowered. Every lynching, 
means just so much moral deterioration in all the children who have any knowledge of it, and therefore just so much additional trouble for the next generation of Americans. Let justice be both sure and swift, but let it be justice under the law, and not the wild and crooked savagery of a mob. There is another matter which has a direct bearing upon this matter of lynching and of the brutal crime which sometimes calls it forth, and at other times merely furnishes the excuse for its existence. It is out of the question for our people as a whole permanently to rise by treading down any of their own number. Even those who themselves for the moment profit by such maltreatment of their fellows will in the long run also suffer. No more short-sighted policy can be imagined than, in the fancied interest of one class, to prevent the education of another class. The free public school, the chance for each boy or girl to get a good elementary education, lies at the foundation of our whole political situation. In every community, the poorest citizens, those who need the schools most, would be deprived of them if they only received school facilities proportioned to the taxes they paid. This is as true of one portion of our country as of another. It is as true for the Negro as for the white man. The white man, if he is wise, will decline to allow the Negroes in a mass to grow to manhood and womanhood without education. Unquestionably, Education, such as is obtained in our public schools, does not do everything towards making a man a good citizen, but it does much. The lowest and most brutal criminals, those, for instance, who commit the crime of rape, are in the great majority men who have had either no education or very little, just as they are almost invariably men who own no property. For the man who puts money by out of his earnings, like the man who acquires education, is usually lifted above mere brutal criminality. Of course, the best type of education for the colored man, taken as a whole, is such education as is conferred in schools like Hampton and Tuskegee, where the boys and girls, the young men and young women, are trained industrially as well as in the ordinary public school branches. The graduates of these schools turn out well in the great majority of cases, and hardly any of them become criminals, while what little criminality there is never takes the form of that brutal violence which invites lynch law. Every graduate of these schools, and for the matter of that, every other colored man or woman, who leads a life so useful and honorable as to win the goodwill and respect of those whites whose neighbor he or she is, thereby helps the whole colored race, as it can be helped in no other way. For next to the Negro himself, the man who can do most to help the Negro is his white neighbor who lives near him, and our steady effort should be to better the relations between the two. Great though the benefit of these schools has been to their colored pupils and to the colored people, it may well be questioned whether the benefit has not been at least as great to the white people among whom these colored pupils live 
after they graduate. Be it remembered, furthermore, that the individuals who, whether from folly, from evil temper, from greed for office, or in a spirit of mere base demagogy, indulge in the inflammatory and incendiary speeches and writings which tend to arouse mobs and to bring about lynching, not only thus excite the mob, but also tend by what criminologists call, quote, suggestion, unquote, greatly to increase the likelihood of a repetition of the very crime against which they are inveighing. When the mob is composed of the people of one race and the man lynched is of another race, the men who in their speeches and writings either excite or justify the action tend, of course, to excite a bitter race feeling and to cause the people of the opposite race to lose sight of the abominable act of the criminal himself, and in addition, by the prominence they give to the hideous deed they undoubtedly tend to excite in other brutal and depraved natures thoughts of committing it. Swift, relentless, and orderly punishment under the law is the only way by which criminality of this type can permanently be suppressed. End of section 20